2: Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit MFM.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family
3: Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
2: Do you like beer? Do you like free? How about, you guessed it, free beer? As a valued listener, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious and painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash Chels and cover just the postage of four ninety five. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Chels podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small-batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise, then, that they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Don't like dark beers? Choose the light plan easy. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash chels to get your case free and don't forget right now the chels podcast listeners get two extra free beers. Hello, good evening and welcome to the Chels. This is the Chels in another alternative dimension and joining me in this alternative dimension is Mr Andy Saunders. How are you Andy? I'm all right, I'm bearing up under the strain, ducking and diving, bobbing and weaving. How about you? Yeah, yeah, all of those things, uh, like everyone else, and doing it all from the comfort of my own home. So, if we're in your home now, which I presume we are, I hope you're finding enough to keep yourselves occupied, and hopefully, we can give you something good to listen to this week and enjoy.
4: Now, and you have to—you're you're in a, a bit of your home because your wife is properly isolating, isn't she? So you're not even allowed—you've imprisoned her in a bedroom, haven't you?
2: <laughs> that. That sounds drastic uh you'll be comparing me to what was that austrian guy
4: joseph fritzel
2: oh that's right yeah i can see how your mind's working um yeah leaving <laughs> food
4: outside her door and all that kind of stuff aren't you
2: absolutely well jackie my wife got stranded in spain as we know um last week and we managed to finally get her back on a plane this weekend but the advice was now having come from spain she has to self-isolate for 14 days so yeah she's uh hidden away in one of the upstairs rooms and i haven't seen her for days um it's it's always difficult because you wonder well how close can i get they say two and a half meters but if the windows open does that blow you know it it really is quite interesting when you have to do it in your own house so yeah yeah, we've kept separate and what happens is if if she wants to come downstairs because i don't want to take her plates and things once she's used them um and to be fair there's no sign that she's got the virus but we're taking no chances so literally i have to leave all the doors open in a certain way the the dishwasher open in a certain way the bin open in a certain way so she can (laughs) so she can put everything mental isn't it it is but, you know... Properly it, bonkers. It is bonkers, but it's, you know, we can't do anything but. I think we have to all take it seriously. And
4: Well, we do. It's my daughter's birthday tomorrow, Wednesday, and, uh, you know, she was going to have some friends over, and, and she can't do that now. And, and, you know, it's tough for a 16-year-old girl to have the crushing realisation that she, she's kind of on her own for the next few weeks, you know, that she's got... I mean, obviously she has the technology to FaceTime and talk to friends and, and do all that kind of stuff, but... I think the kind of sense of loneliness is really going to hit home for 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 some people not for you and me so much because we've worked from home for so long that we're we're used to it to me this is no different to what i normally do really so uh, but for people that are used to socializing and and having a lot of people around them it's going to be going to be really difficult isn't it
2: yeah it is and uh, interesting you say you're you're used to it well so am i but the only difference now is there's not necessarily any work um because people i work for usually have offices have places where they go and uh, or i have to go out filming or what have you so there isn't any work for the foreseeable like so many people who are probably listening at the moment so we're all in this together aren't we Andy? You, you're,
4: you can still flog dodgy antiques online though can't you
2: well yes and no you can't at the moment because um there's no way to really transport stuff, so right. it, it, w- the transportation system is slowing down everywhere. So one you of mean my- the logistics system, yeah, exactly, yeah. and and also the the transportation uh, of pieces. I've, I've just sorted out where what, one thing being transported uh, tomorrow, but. It's a hell of a palaver. And as I've said to everyone, hey, look, if it works for you, fine. If it doesn't, it's no problem. You, you just can't put pressure on people who are working with inside these new infrastructures that are being built or dismantled, whichever way you look at it.
4: Yeah, I mean, everybody's in this. I mean, my business has fallen to bits over the last couple of weeks because, you know, I'm a consultant and if people are looking to rescue their businesses and save their staff, then, you know, people like me are the first things they cut and I can't really blame them for it and the only thing that gives me any solace is the fact that I'm not alone and there's a lot of people out there and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this uh, podcast that are in the same boat and we send you our best wishes and our solidarity and our hopes that all of us can get through this healthy and and out the other side and and rebuild what we've what we've got
2: yeah, absolutely true. Spot on. I couldn't agree with you more. So, so yes. Well, I mean, the first thing we should do in this alternative Chelsea is talk about Villa because, of course, you went. to Yeah. The what game. a game! What Uh-oh. a game! <laughs> you, did, did you go with anyone, or did you keep uh, well, your social distancing? I, I was
4: going to go. I was going to go with someone, but they, they, they pulled out. So I went. I obviously went on my own, and um, I was surprised to see the, the amount of Chelsea there. I mean, obviously, you know, the support was the support was undimmed, even given the the, the grim forecast. So, and as I say, you know, an amazing game, really. And, and it
2: must have been so nice when when JT suddenly appeared and he, he snuck around with a mask on or something, didn't he? And he had underneath his coat a Chelsea shirt and he kissed the badge in front of you, didn't he?
4: Amazing. You know, he's, he's proper Chelsea and, and, and always will be. And, uh, you know, that, that was nice to see as well. But, you know, going 3-0 down, you know, it was was you know was a bit of a shock. I have to say, after 15 minutes, but uh, the way we brought it back was brilliant.
2: Oh, you know that fifth goal when it when we got back to three. Or I mean, there were such crazy goals. Uh, I mean, that Ross Barkley screamer from 63 yards was incredible.
4: Yeah, I don't think he meant it to be honest.
2: Well, I thought it it was a pass back, but he slipped and it flew up and over caught on the wind you know it it was it was very strange but which was your favorite goal um i know which mine was apart from ross's
4: well i quite like i mean well i mean it's the obvious thing to say but i really like the kepper penalty i mean the way (laughs) the way he came up and and took the penalty was amazing you know it's it it took a lot of bottle to paninka you know that as your as your first competitive (laughs) penalty in, in in professional football um but you know it was you know it's just it took some real it took some guts and and i admire him for it he's had a lot of stick uh, but when you can do that under pressure, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's worthy of praise.
2: <laughs> I think so. I mean, there is no better way to win a game than, than something like that. And I, I guess you're right. I, I can't really top that. You know, everyone else is fantastic, but that shows that he's reintegrated into the squad properly. And, uh, you know, and, and what did you think of the atmosphere? The Chelsea fans were amazing, weren't they?
4: Yeah, it was it, it was great, and um, I mean, I, I'm slightly worried now about, about the social distancing aspects of it. But no, you can't blame the support, and uh, and what a game to go out on, really. You know, to you know to, to get those three points, um, and and you know to
2: follow that, follow the Everton game, and and really do that was brilliant. Yeah, well, you know, any time you win seven five away from home, that's got to be good. I say, yeah, crazy game, but you know that's the times we live in, I, and I'm sure I predicted that score in this alternative universe. Um, I'm pretty yeah. sure. I think I've just got one of the goal scorers wrong. But there you go. Can't have everything. So, So I... It, it. The other thing, I mean, I'm glad... Is this what t-
4: we're going to do now? Just
2: basically <laughs> talk about games that never happened? What are you talking about? <laughs> to me, this happened. This is as real as it can be. I tell you, uh, this really is the most sensible moment <laughs> of my day. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so, you, you know. It's
4: tough to do a Chelsea podcast without any Chelsea games. So We're just, just making the games up, listeners. As we do <laughs> it
2: That's now. right. Yeah, if anyone thinks, oh, my God, I've got to see match of the day. Well, it might be a bit tricky because I think yeah. they've taken it off air because it just put everything else into, into the show. <laughs> but but the, the other thing, um, you know, we, we, we talk about what we can do in our time and our spare time and how we fill our supposed work hours. Uh, I suppose one has to think about journalists a bit. And in a minute, we're going to hear from from Naz, because it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't know if you've noticed all the sports pages aren't empty. Every, everyone's trying to create interesting articles, features, long reads. Um, and there's, there's definite interest. And everyone's harking back to the past, talking about great games. P- papers are printing old reviews of games. It's quite interesting how we're getting... It's almost... It's, it's not far off what we just did about Villa, except it's about real games and bringing them back into the present. Well, I think that there's
4: an insatiable desire to read about sport and to still engage with sport. We can't watch live sport, so if you look at TV programming, it's it's you know it's going back to old games and it's packaging up old games, um, and and it's it's very similar in the printed word. People have to go and and. and f- find something to write about and the obvious thing to do is go and mine the archives and i'm finding it very interesting i'm finding the whole long read element of it interesting the athletic obviously brought that in as a as a new a fairly new reintroduced concept um quite successfully and this is going to do them a lot of favors i think because it's getting people into the habit of long reads of 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 you know of, of not that bite-sized 24 hour a day news cycle stuff but more about actually something with a little bit of depth i like it
2: yeah, I do as well, and uh, there's been a lot of very interesting things, and I think we're going to be finding more and more uh, interesting angles that, that journalists are taking. Um, I don't know if you've had any favourite reads over over the last few days. I, I think we're just only at the beginning of it, but, um, you know, and and everyone's searching for things like, I've seen on Twitter a lot of people coming up with their best football stats or and, and what have you, and I think my favourite so far was, Didier Drogba, 11 finals, 10 goals and 10 wins. Well, you know, what happened with the 11th? You know, I mean, but it's a great stat. i would never even thought about obvious things suddenly become wonderful things.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think it, somebody was doing a sort of uh, a, um, an analysis of Anelka's time at Chelsea and if you look at his stats and what he achieved and the golden boot and you know, he was a hugely underrated striker for us. Imagine if we had Nicolas Anelka now. Um, you know it would it would have made a huge difference to our season and players like that that you can go back and sort of uh, reflect on and, and 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 think about and think about you know what what they bought. At a time, you know, in their Chelsea career and they were maybe overshadowed by bigger, bolder, more colourful characters. But it's interesting to go back to some of those great teams of 2005, 2012, etc. And and, and and look at those teams and think of all the kind of unsung heroes in those
2: teams as well. Yeah, and, and Elk is a very interesting point because it's not... it's also not just the colourful characters around him, it's also the past that he'd had, you know the, the, the baggage that came with Anelka making his name at Arsenal, playing at Real Madrid, you think i think it was the times where we felt we only got players from clubs like real madrid if they were finished and mm. over the hill whereas now we're, we can be a little bit competitive look if real madrid want to keep one of their players there's no way we're ever going to get them but it was a different time then it was like when uh mickey b michael ballack came i uh, for mickey me b yeah who calls him Mickey B? Well, I just did. Nobody calls him Mickey B. We all did. The true supporters. Who's we? The true supporters, not the plastics. We- <laughs> <laughs> Mickey B. Yeah, He's Mickey not B. You're a market trader from Camberwell. Well, I mean, yeah, now you're going to, you know, you're, you're being insulting here. Um, <laughs> Dirk Kaiser. Can't call him Mickey B. Yeah, He can. It's great. He was. He was. I always called him that. <laughs> I, you But for me, he was the most wonderful guy to have in that side because often he wouldn't just play week in week out there were periods where he would just be on the bench and he'd be brought on to do a job and actually he seemed to wear it all with a good grace he had a he had a wonderful career at Chelsea but he was he was never just always in the team it was odd to me that he wasn't
4: and some amazing moments I thought he I was. I gotta be honest, right? I'm gonna put my cards on the table. There were times I got very frustrated with Michael Ballack. Um, I, I felt that he was a little bit slow at times, um, and that he um, sometimes coasted through games. Um, but when he was when he was Michael Ballack, when he was really on when the court, was he was Mickey B, when he was Dirk Kaiser, he was. Fantastic, You know, there were brilliant moments, um, either goal scoring or assists or, or just being a presence in that midfield. Uh, he was great. But he's another one that I would reflect on and think maybe I didn't give him much credit at the time as I should have done.
2: No, well, I, I agree. I, I, I totally agree. I, I, I think I'm sure there'll be a Mickey B special out soon on on one of the channels and you can you can watch how great he was. He was imperious and also... Imperious is a good word to yeah, describe him. Yeah. And he was as filthy as hell when he wanted to be. 100%. <laughs> he knew when that tackle was relevant and he'd take someone out completely, knowing he'd get a card or not. Uh, he he was—he he was just uh, for me. He was class.
4: Yeah, he had an unbelievable amount of arrogance about him, you know, which which made him a big figure on the pitch, and he was a good leader. So, you know, I think there's a lot. There was a lot to love about about Michael Ballack.
2: Yeah, I agree. Well, anyway, look, as, we, as we're as we talking about long reads, journalists, stories and things, um, we caught up with this from, from Naz, Mr. Nizar Kinsella from Goal.com, who uh, told us what he was up to in his spare time. Well, luckily, there's not too much spare time for him. He's working and reporting. So let's hear what Naz has to say.
3: Hi, guys. Nizar Kinsella here, Goals Chelsea correspondent, reporting for the Chelsea. Um, it's been a bit of a strange week for us all, really, Um, as government measures ramp up to stop the spread of coronavirus. Um, we do less and less. We stay in our homes. We don't do a lot. Um, we're just trying to stay safe and not spread the virus, which is totally worthwhile. But in football terms, in Chelsea terms, um, yeah, there's not a lot going on. Um, I found out yesterday that they would return to work on the 6th of April. Um, that seems an optimistic date, but uh, it has been pushed back. They were due to come back today. Um, the period of self-isolation had ended uh this week, uh, so they were due back in training, due back at the training ground, but um the public health uh warnings and, and the, the need to stay at home has, has dictated that Um, they don't go to work, so Chelsea players have uh, exercise bikes at their home, all of them have been sent them by the club, Um, what else are they doing? Uh, They've got training programmes, these are sent week by week, Um, but as you can imagine, uh, it's not the elite facilities they're used to. Um, every Premier League club is now training behind closed doors, so they're in the same boat. Uh, Sheffield United were the last ones to stop uh, training. They they stopped today on Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a strange place for the football industry, trying to work out uh, how to keep fit in the, in this time. Um, and there's only so much you can do at home with your kids running around. A lot of these guys have young kids and stuff like that. Uh, so I have heard that, um, it can be distracting. It can be difficult, but it's certainly no more difficult than what other people are going through. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange one really how to assess it. Um, but yeah, for me as a journalist, uh, we're in a similar situation. You know, I'm lucky enough to still be working, still be writing things. Um, I'm writing more about hard news these days, um, um, the odd the odd bit of transfer news, um, but you know even transfers are, are kind of grinding to a halt, or or they have an asterisk, you know Chelsea want this player but you can't sign him until they find out what's going to happen with the the business side of football, the scheduling as well massively impacts transfers so. Um, yeah it's it's a, it's it's a huge issue really throughout but yeah i'm i'm writing a bit of hard news as well about how the coronavirus affects different people in the industry too um a couple of interviews some guys have been nice enough to um reach out to me and offer interviews and stuff like that so uh, yeah football goes on to an extent but in a very very stripped down way and uh, yeah uh, we we all wish it comes back but um let's stay safe and let's continue uh, you know following the guidelines all the best guys
2: so that was Nas um, reporting there, Andy. You know, we hear about how they were planning to get back to the training ground. How you know, one date comes and goes, and another one. I, th- I think it was really interesting when he talked about the fact that Sheffield United had only just stopped training. Um, whereas yeah, that,
4: that was interesting, isn't it? It's it's you'd have thought that football clubs would have really clamped down on that as soon as they heard about Mikel Arteta and Callum Hudson Odoi
2: yeah it's 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 a, it's a strange situation to be fair and and the players as he says you know they're all training at home but I guess how fit can players get at home when they're so used to having as he says state-of-the-art gyms to work in and now that well,
4: a lot of them have got state-of-the-art gyms in their houses I saw a uh, uh an Instagram post from Pedro on his treadmill you know running around and various other players I mean they've all got decent equipment in their houses i mean i think the one thing they've got to keep up during this this time is their cardio they've got to get their cardio up they've got to run they've got to get on the bike they've got to and they've got to make sure that they are not going to lose that cardio fitness the other stuff i think you know the the skill stuff and the, the technique i think to be honest if they haven't got that by by this stage in their career they're struggling you know so i think it's fitness that's the key thing at the moment and making sure they're doing that and eating properly and and devoting enough time to that
2: do you think, uh, and do you subscribe to the point of view that uh, possibly once the season's announced to start, the players will need a few weeks to get ready? Almost like I said another- that last week. I said that yeah. on the
4: pod last week. I don't think you know these these guys won't won't have match fitness and they won't have you know, strategic, uh, we won't have the strategy drilled into them, they won't have all that stuff. So there's going to be a... It's going to feel very pre-season when we restart.
2: Well, maybe we'll end up with games that are a bit like a 7-5, like you saw at Villa. That, maybe. You know, we we just don't know quite how it's going to turn out, if it'll turn out. I mean, what's your gut feeling now that we're in lockdown? Does Does football seem even further away?
4: It really does. It really does. I can't see... I can't see anything on the horizon at the moment that that suggests that live football is in any way imminent. I think that we're looking certainly towards the end of the summer before that's even a possibility. And then that's going to bleed into the the new season. Um, so all those conversations we had last week about what the possible permutations are are still up in the air nobody knows. I think we're going to have to just wait and see and be guided by what the powers that be think is the solution but in terms of being able to see watch attend live football no it's no it's nowhere near is
2: it no and i i thought somebody who came out with something this week which i thought was spot on and wonderful and i've never thought i'd agree with him um is wayne rooney who came out with the this statement when they were talking to him about football coming back he said well You know, why do we want to go out and play football if people are uh, sick and dying in hospitals when even if we play behind closed doors? What's the point? The amount of people that have got to be in the stadium just to make the game happen. And more importantly, there are people from the NHS then in the crowd or in the ground who really should be at the hospitals. We shouldn't be taking anyone away from the NHS. And I I thought that was spot on because, you know, I've spent time in my life. Too much time inside the NHS as a patient. Um, But I can only say... getting in the way. (laughs) Well, this was years ago. So, you know, uh, and long may it stay that way. But, you know, I mean, what I've seen of the NHS, which is rather too much, is they are a fantastic group of people. And what they're doing at this moment in time is so selfless. It, It just, we can't thank them enough. And I just hope that they get through this intact, all of them, because they do such an amazing job.
4: They do, and I was in uh, Medway um, Hospital uh, in the week. I had to pick up some cancer medication for a family member. And going into a hospital at the moment is a strange experience. You can smell smell the anxiety, smell the fear, and and see the stress and the, the worry on people's faces as you go in. I mean, hospitals are not the jolliest of places at the best of times, but really now it feels dark and and it was an unsettling experience to go in there and I think what we're asking our NHS workers and the ancillary staff in the health service to do what we're asking them to do at the moment is is be heroic and there's no other way to describe them than, than heroes and that goes for any health worker around the world we're asking these people to put themselves in situations that we probably wouldn't want to and I hope that when all this is over they are Uh, recognised and rewarded for that with decent pay and decent conditions and we start taking our NHS and other health service and all the workers that are involved in it seriously and, and put them right at the very front of what we as a society deem as important key workers.
2: Yeah, I I totally agree with that wholeheartedly. In a kind of way, it'd be nice to find a way to do a a ticker tape parade for them. I I don't mean literally, but in some way to celebrate just what these people do. Um, So, yeah. Okay, well... But moved. in terms of what Wayne Rooney saying, sorry, well, in sorry, terms of, yeah, what of Wayne is, uh, or,
4: or Wayney R, as you probably refer to him, I think that um, it's uh, <laughs> yes, I, think, I think that's that's very important. It's a point that a lot of people don't miss. It's not the 22 players on the pitch, the ref, and the, the two officials. It's it's all the other support staff. And actually, in my industry, the music industry, one of the reasons that large gatherings were um, uh, told to stop was not. Not initially for the social distancing element of it, but because of the um, amount of uh, emergency service support that those gatherings need, um, and it is selfish and it is unnecessary and it is inappropriate to suck key services away from where they're needed to you know to staff things like football matches and gigs. It doesn't make any sense. So I think he he has a he has a very good point.
2: Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Um, well, the, the other thing we, we must do uh, this programme is, of course, do our wonderful little uh, section called First, Worst and Best. And uh, the person who's doing it this week is Matt Lowe. And here he is with his first, worst and best Chelsea games.
1: Hello. Thanks for the Chelsea podcast for giving me the opportunity to do my first worst and best games My name's Matt Lowe, I've been following the Blues since 77, my first game was not until 87 against Wimbledon in the old 1st Division at the bridge and I remember climbing up the steps at the bridge and just being in awe of the East Stand which just looked like a spaceship to me and I remember feeling very very small but being very very excited to finally be at a game at Stanford Bridge and then the game started. A little fella called Dennis Wise put Wimbledon in the lead. And given how our, our season was going, I presume that was a header. Uh, and then Gordon Dury, Boo, equalised from the spot. And then a few minutes later, Wimbledon were down to nine men. And there was still well over 20 minutes to go. And I remember getting very excited and thinking, yes, first game, we're going to get a win here. They play, we're playing against nine men. Yeah, finish one all my worst game and I still hate talking about this was against Sunderland away Roker Park FA Cup 6 round replay 1992 Sunderland had been in the lead for virtually the whole match and then in the last minute Dennis Wise popped up and equalised for Chelsea pandemonium in our end only for a deep into stoppage time Sunderland to get a set piece Andy Townsend was supposed to be covering the front post and he inexplicably just wandered away for no apparent reason and an absolute nobody called John Byrne bullet-headed them into the lead, and we were out of the cup. It was an horrific night. I didn't get home till five in the morning, and I had to be up for work at seven. Awful. That leads me to my best game, which was on the terracing at White Hart Lane, 1991 League Cup fifth round replay, and. Even though I've been going to Chelsea for well over 30 years now and I've seen us win the lot, nothing has ever compared to the white heat of that evening. Chelsea were terrific. The atmosphere was amazing. There were thousands of Chelsea fans there. A lot of them in the wrong part of the ground. And we won 3-0. We were purling. And I remember coming out of the ground and it was just kicking off everywhere. People running out of side streets. Sirens going off. And it was a night really as a Chelsea fan to keep your head down and just get back on the tube system. So what I did, the arrogance of youth, was I went into a shop, I bought me and my mate two cigars, and we just wandered down Tottenham High Road smoking these cigars with a smug look on our face. And how we got to Seven Sisters Tube with our front teeth still intact is a mystery that remains to this day and they are my first, worst, and best. Thanks again, and up the chelsea.
2: So, that, that was Matt Lowe. Um, I loved him talking about going into the ground for the first time, and it's feeling like a spaceship, and feeling so small. Can can you remember the first moment you walked into Stamford Bridge, and, and how you felt? Was, was there a feeling, I remember for me, it, it felt almost like... Uh, I suppose I wouldn't know it was, but it was almost like a bit of a religious experience, having all these people around you all concentrating on one thing. Do you remember how it felt for you?
4: I think that's a pretty good description. I I said last week I was seven, so whilst I can't remember the game um, in any detail that I went to, I can remember the feeling, and I can remember the smells of... You know, I can just remember the smells of the, you know, the horse dung and, the, you know, the hot dogs and all that stuff. And I can remember, you know, cigarette smoke and um, the sort of overwhelming scale of it, you know, because we went into the sort of shed. And uh, and I stood in the shed for years and years and years. Um, and always as you came up through the turnstiles and you came up those that, those steep steps and there was always that amazing sense of, of arrival into the ground, you know, when, when when you stood in the shed and then you'd work your way if you were a kid all the way down to the front or in later years I used to stand on the east side. Um, and then we used to stand there together, didn't we, for yeah. many years. Yeah. And absolutely. then if I had a little bit of money I might might pay my pound to go over to, to the you know, the benches in the West Stand and go you know, and watch both ends of, the, of Chelsea. We used to change ends. Um, and then when I had a little bit more money a bit later on I used to go and sit by the dugouts in the East Stand because um, you could buy tickets on the day um and I used to sort of sit all around the ground really um and but yes when i I do remember that feeling of I would call it a feeling of arrival. I have arrived, mm. and I think that 's what that 's what hooks match going fans in the first time you come up those steps and you see the vista of the stadium and the sense of scale because I, I i you know when you 're little it 's huge. Um, I think that's that's a very very common feeling amongst match going football fans.
2: Yeah, I I, th- I think you describe it really well there, and uh, and it's there's something I I agree with you. So in certain ways, you don't really remember the very early games. I, I always try and remember what the first things I know are genuine memories are. Uh, if you if you understand what I'm saying there in the fact that sometimes you have a perceived memory of things and sometimes you have an actual memory. Uh, and I guess one of the the first memories I, I have of, of football itself in the season that I started going to regularly was I think it was 1971. Um, there were two moments that stand out for me. One was John Hollins scoring a couple against Arsenal. And I remember that really well that day because one of them, he he took down... He flicked up and then took down on his thigh and then volleyed it into the roof of the net from the edge of the penalty area. And it it was the first goal that I really remember watching uh, at Chelsea and then saw it on the big match on the Sunday. And it was even better than I remembered it. Suddenly you could see it in in full glory. And you go, I remember that moment. I know what's going to happen. It it was that wonderful, tantalising joy of of having your memory solidified by TV coverage. Now, every game is covered, but it was very rare. If they weren't featured, your team, in the big match or match of the day, you never got to see any footage, did you? No.
4: And these days, what's interesting these days, all the arguments I tend to have with my sons are about what end goals were scored at. and Because my memory isn't great, if I'm honest. And and I'm always like, that was in front of the Ched, or that was in front of the Matthew Harding. And they're like, No. And I'm like, it definitely was. And I'm like, absolutely not. And, and so because the TV cameras are, is different to my view of it, sometimes my memory is formed by the TV on match of the day, if you see what I mean. So I can watch, for example, the Barcelona, classic Barcelona 4-2 game and, and always think that it's at the wrong end, you know, because, of, because I've watched it on TV and then that's solidified it. But even though I was at the game, I'm misremembering what end the goals were scored at. It's a weird trick that it plays on my memory.
2: Yeah, or... just basically well, it's easier
4: for you because you're behind the goal, so yeah. it's always going to be either in front of you or at the other end. Whereas if you're on the side, if the if the TV view is from the opposite side that you're actually watching the game, it can sometimes play tricks on your memory. If that makes any sense,
2: yeah, it does. And actually, for me behind the goal uh, in the Matthew Harding lower, I either I, I remember which end it is because I either have hardly a view, or no view, and no view <laughs> yeah. is when it's are down you going our gonna, end.
4: Are you going <laughs> to moan again about people standing
2: up? Yeah, absolutely. Have, have a little rant. Little okay, legs. I'm going to. Because because... Because standing up used to be great when it was just for the big games, because you knew it was a big game. And interestingly, I was talking to Naz about this uh, for a piece that he's doing this week. The other thing that gets lost by everyone standing constantly is that wonderful sound when there's a corner or something exciting happening, when everyone stands up and all the seats clack. And it's an incredible sound. And I haven't heard it for years now. You knew something was... Tantalising and tangibly happening in front of your eyes yeah. uh, when you heard that sound of all the we seats. We still get
4: that. We still get that on the side.
2: You don't. You've you've got cushioned seats, haven't you?
4: Well, obviously, I have, a, I have a man that holds my seat down, So, but, but, but apart from that, you know. No, we still get that, because obviously, we, we sit uh, on the side, um, and when we stand up, you do get that clack. It is a nice sound. I know exactly what you mean by it.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, look, Andy, what we've got to do is we've got to go to an ad break, but what we're going to do after the ad break is we're going to go straight to a chat that I had with Chelsea historian, Mr. Rick Glanville, about... Well, uh, the similarities be- between coronavirus and the Spanish flu in 1818 to 1820. So uh, 1918 to 1920. Excuse me, getting me centuries mixed up. Um, but interestingly, we seem to have some sort of uh, plague or epidemic every hundred years. So um, make of that what you will. So after the outbreak, we'll be going straight through to my chat with Mr. Rick Glanville. See you in a minute.
3: Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike, e-bikes that are cool AF.
2: Hello Rick, how are you?
0: I'm isolated, but fine, and I hope you are too.
2: Yep, I'm isolated. Uh, you know, my my wife Jackie was stranded in Spain for a week, but she's now oh, I know. back. So she's she's now back and isolating upstairs. So it's an interesting time. Um I thought I'd give you a shout because um I, I've I've been reading that brilliant piece that you've put up on the on the Chelsea website. Um mm, thank and you. no, it it's it's really Uh, uh, fascinating that we do have sort of similarities now to back in 1918 with the Spanish flu. And I just wanted to mention one of the quotes that you managed to find from a UK foreign office blogger, which Mm. absolutely scrambles my head anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) called called, uh, Tara Finn. um, And she wrote a few years ago, In 1918, the death rate in Britain exceeded the birth rate for the first year since government started maintaining records in 1837. So would you like to explain a little bit about this to us, please?
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, 1918. So what happened in 1918? Probably lots of people are thinking, well, that was the First World War. Interestingly, that isn't what caused this high... Uh, death rate in Britain. It was actually a pandemic that became known as Spanish flu. It was an influenza, a strain of influenza um, that uh, swept the world. And it was, I mean, since then, epidemiologists have tried to work out what its origins were and things like that and what carried it. And what they've concluded is that uh, it was carried by Troop movements, so people who infected soldiers, servicemen uh, during World War I were carrying this around, transmitting it to each other. And uh, and obviously uh, the death rate was much higher in Spanish flu than it is in uh, COVID-19. And um, it's reckoned that overall it claimed around the world up to 50 million lives. Uh, between 1918 and 1920, and um, it arrived. It came in two waves in 1918. Early in this kind of springtime, it was reckoned to be just a normal influenza, and it was the symptoms seemed to be quite mild, and the mortality rate was low. But then it came back. Uh, you know, influenza loves the winter, and that's when it came back in around November, December. Uh, time and that's when it was at its absolute peak it stayed around for about another year and a half still claiming victims sadly Um, and the key thing the key difference really between the virus in 1918 to 20 and the current one is that it specifically uh, took, um, uh, took the worst toll on young people rather than the older people and people with underlying health conditions that's happening now it was mostly people between the ages of 25 and 40 and particularly 27 to 30 uh, that were affected
2: oh, well that's that's uh, an interesting sort of age group because i guess that's uh, a sporting age
0: um <laughs> it's peak what we call peak uh, age for footballers isn't it coming yeah, into exactly. their prime and so uh, and clearly, that was the case. And if quite apart from, I mean, it's quite mind-blowing if you think about these uh, young men who'd just been fighting in World War One, and then there's this double whammy of this influenza that's hitting exactly the same kind of uh, conscription age group. I mean, it's a it's an absolutely awful thing to consider. But how did it affect football? Well, during World War One we didn't have like a national football league from 1916 and we were playing regional competitions and that was largely to save on fuel and things like that uh, so football was so chelsea played in like the london combination and other localized cups but they carried on uh, and that even at the height when sort of hundreds of people would, were dying across london thousand, uh, i think over a thousand in one month in uh, December 1918 died in London, but football uh, was still carrying on. Chelsea was still playing, still attracting crowds of 20,000, up to 30,000 at times. Uh, so the kind of what, what we now, the kind of isolation that we've just been talking about, that we're putting ourselves in and the fact that we are now, reason probably we're doing this podcast is because the football is paused and the whole world is, uh, of entertainment and leisure and mass gatherings has ground to a halt. nothing like that happened in 1918 to 1920 it's really uh, uh, mind-blowing when you think about it
2: yeah, it is. Um, but we talk about the, the football. I mean, it's a very different era, as you say, the combinations, playing more local games uh, and what have you. But we were actually victorious through this, weren't we? We we, we, we won something.
0: <laughs> well, we were I mean, we actually won the League and Cup double in 1917, 1918, uh, 19, 19, and we carried on with a degree of success in 1918-19. Uh, so as I said, in the winter of 1918, when the this virus had come back with an absolute vengeance, um, Chelsea were halfway through the London Combination League and uh, didn't finish, finish about halfway uh, in that, played about 36 games or so. But um, there was this new competition uh, that happened after uh, because of course 1918 um, was when the war ended uh, 11th of November famously Armistice Day and in fact that's another thing at the height of the, this so 11th of November during the height of this influenza crisis there were no restrictions on crowds on the streets celebrating Armistice Day and there was a Lord Mayor's show a few days earlier with 5,000 people marching so they didn't have any of the kind of restrictions that we had but back to Chelsea and the uh, London Victory Cup, as it was called. This ran from, uh, as far as Chelsea were concerned, from March uh, through to um, April nineteen uh, nineteen. So just after the, the the flu was on the wane slightly, but still around and still take still claiming victims. But uh, Chelsea played three matches in that uh, in that in that competition. And um, I mean, really, when you think about it, <laughs> it's, people were sort of seeing their loved ones dying, uh, but they were still going off to see Chelsea beat QPR 2 uh, 0 at, at Stamford Bridge. And then in the next round, we thumped Crystal Palace on our own soil. Uh, and then at the end of the month, on so the 28th of April, uh, we played Fulham in the final, the London Victory Cup final, beaten 3 0 in front of a crowd of 36,000. So you know you're thinking, well, that's, that's quite incredible that 36,000 people were turning out in the midst of all this uh, this terrible influenza, influenza that was everyone knew that it was, you know, whole families were being taken by it, but football carried on. And in fact, there were a couple of people in that team uh, that had recovered. They, they called it; it was also known as the blue death because it turned lungs blue, and also. Spanish Lady was another nickname for for this influenza, and two of the players, two of the Chelsea players, had been, as they called it, escorted by the Spanish Lady at some stage. But they had, luckily, they had recovered from uh, the flu. But one player, uh, one former player, didn't.
2: Well, we'll we'll get on to him in a second. I I was just going to just make one, one slight observation is. Is this why Fulham hate us so much, because of the 1919 <laughs> Victory Cup?
0: Um, well, it's an interesting thing, of course, because it was a short-lived competition and we are still the holders of it. So um, I'm, I suppose I should be arguing that we have it on the front of our programme, current holders of the, uh, the 1919 London Victory Cup. Well, of course, because football's been suspended, we're still holders of the Europa League, as I keep liking to, uh, I keep like to remind people that yeah, uh, well, that's still ours for the time being.
2: No, that's true. Well, I I wonder if there's any way that when everything gets back to normal, perhaps we could reposition Corona the victory cup. cup. <laughs> could, well, whatever you want to call it. But, and do and we <laughs> hold the cup still at Stamford Bridge? Is it in the museum?
0: That we've never been able to find it. We don't know what's happened to it. So whether some Fulham fans sneak round one time and, Uh, and uh, kept it for themselves i i'm not so sure there were victory cups held in all the regional competitions ours is the the london victory cup but um we and we won it at highbury so that was always that's always a nice thought as well
2: lovely well let's see if anyone knows where the victory cup is please get in touch with the chelsea and we'll repatriate it with chelsea (laughs) So, I, I, lastly, I'd just like to you know, go to the point you were making that actually, sadly, uh, a Chelsea or an ex-Chelsea player actually died through this. Um, if you'd like, tell me a little bit about Angus Douglas, wasn't it?
0: It was Angus, Ang, Angus Douglas. Uh, first of all, two vi- Chelsea vice presidents contracted the virus but but survived. But one who didn't was a former uh, Chelsea player, played over 100 times for us, uh, starting in 1908, uh, left in 1913 and went to Newcastle. And um, he was quite an acquisition. He cost about £2,000 and he was he was a winger, uh, very fast, uh, good at going down to the the goal line and then cutting back, passing a ball for Bob Whittingham or George Gatling Gunn-Hilsden or someone like that. Um, but he'd left us in 1913 and he found himself in the North East. He was a, a Scotsman, actually, from Dumfries. And uh, he was... He was a teenager when he joined us and he made his name at Chelsea. Um, So by the time uh, he'd left, uh, so he was in his 20s and just coming up to his prime. But of course, the war ended his football career and he started to work at a munitions factory, uh, Vickers, uh, sorry, Armstrong Whitworth, uh, later known as Vickers in Newcastle. Uh, And unfortunately, in 1918, he and his uh, partner died uh, within four days of each other, with, uh, nursed by uh, his uncle. Uh, they died in separate rooms, Nancy, his partner, uh, and, uh, and him, in uh, just the most appalling circumstances, apparently. Um, they had no money. This uncle was looking after them. But there was also an, their eight-month-old daughter, called Betty, who was with them. So you can just imagine how awful their circumstances uh, must have been. And it made headlines. Famous footballer dies. Um, It was covered in all the newspapers. And um, it's sad that it's a story that's actually been forgotten. Certainly, I had no idea about this story until I started researching it, because so few footballers seem to have died uh, of uh, the Spanish flu but the most famous one is a former Chelsea player and what's nice is I tracked down some of his descendants because Betty survived fortunately, he was raised by an aunt um, on the coast at Whitley Bay and she had a, a family herself and her great-grandchildren still live, live up there and are very proud that their, uh, their uh, ancestor played for Chelsea and for Newcastle United extraordinarily proud of him
2: so lastly did we so there are certain similarities between then and now with with this strange world that we are now walking through. Um <laughs> do you think we've learnt anything from then is there anything that we can take forward for the sport I'm, I'm talking about and the way we involve with with football um and also there was no NHS then I I would just like to immediately say my thanks to everyone at the NHS Absolutely. because they're, they're doing an amazing job and to be fair possibly their work is is far but started in so many ways but having experienced way too much time in hospital in my life I just know what an amazing group of people they all are so yeah heartfelt thanks to them so yeah Quite right. any lessons we, yeah any lessons we can take from all of this for the for the coming months
0: well look I'm one of those who's very critical of the government's uh, communication strategy I think it's left a lot to be desired but it's much better than what happened in 1918 to 1920 There was no national you said there was no NHS there was no real national health uh, there was no department of health until 1919 so that was one of the things that came out I think of this uh, Spanish flu epidemic um, and uh, as you say it was 29 another 29 years before the NHS Came around, but interestingly, the people who would have been children when that influenza epidemic happened would have been parents when the uh, at the time when the discussion about a national health service was uh, uh, was in full swing. So you can imagine that they would have been thinking, "No, we can't go back to times like this. We can't be allowed to um, survive on our wits without any proper instructions." I mean, the the the, the equivalent of the what's his name, Witty, uh, the... Um, what, uh, the
2: Elven Prince? <laughs> yes,
0: the... Uh, uh, the Is he uh, Chief Health Officer or something? Yeah. I can't remember his title, but his equivalent uh, actually drew up a set of instructions to the public that would have been very similar to those we uh, are used to now, which was social isolation uh, and, and uh, closing down theatres and cinemas and uh, football matches and no mass gatherings uh all these kind of things but he shelved them because at the time when he drew up the plans the war was still in full swing and he thought it would be appalling for morale and, mor- and the war had to take uh, precedence on this this is actually another reason why it's called spanish flu is that incidents of the influenza virus in england were suppressed because it was thought to be bad for the war efforts uh, but Spain was neutral. So when King Alfonso XIII contracted flu, it was it was reckoned, you know, this was appeared to be where it had come from, hence the term Spanish flu, simply because of the way that we were uh, basically uh, censoring uh, the epidemic in this country. So I think that's the other thing, is that we all have the internet, thank God for the internet in these times of isolation, but we're much better at communications and being open about these things uh, i just wish we were slightly better at the moment
2: well all i can say is uh, i've learned so much in this last uh, 10 15 minutes with you rick um i really appreciate you coming on and chatting to us oh, my pleasure um, mate we're we're sorry about this sound quality this is just the way it is at the moment but <laughs> <laughs> thank you ever so much rick stay and look safe. out for
0: the second part there's another part about angus douglas on the website tomorrow so
2: tomorrow but this will be going out the day after so it might have been ah. out yesterday <laughs> see what we've done okay. time is a movable beast on this show all right rick keep well and we'll speak to you, soon. you all the best and we're back andy um well, it is amazing the, the sort of uh, the, the similarities between um, what happened in in 1918 and what's happening now. I, incredibly, what, what I found extraordinary was how many people went to these games that that the stadiums were were full of people for football because they they didn't have a clue about self distancing and and keeping apart and didn't really understand. Um, you just can't imagine now with the knowledge we have that. Anyone could have let that happen. It's such a different time and and it took so many people away. Um, Interestingly, two Chelsea players were affected but came back and and played for us. And then, of course, Angus Douglas, who was the one Chelsea player who who didn't survive. Um, you, You know, hopefully all our players will be safe this this time round and and everybody in the world will be safer than they were then because it took a lot of people do you think the action we're taking is is the right way forward for for not just society not just for sport but for for the good of this planet
4: of course it is and you know if i have a criticism of what's going on at the moment i think we should have done it earlier i don't understand the uh reasoning behind not social distancing earlier, I think I can only talk on behalf of the U- not on behalf of, I can only talk about the actions of the UK government who had issued advice and I don't think the advice was strong enough I think we should have shut things down a lot quicker. We had a situation on Sunday in the UK where, you know, people were going to the beach, they were going to parks, they were taking their camper vans to, you know, to to, to remote areas. Snowdonia experienced its, its biggest visitor day ever It was crazy. People need to be told or needed to be told to isolate and I think thankfully now that's happened as of last night and we will start to um you know see see some slowdown on on what's going on at the moment of course what Rick was talking about was an era where there wasn't mass communication there wasn't instant communication you were only really getting your news either through word of mouth or through the radio or through newspapers um so it was very difficult to communicate evolving situations quickly uh, we have that we have that luxury now and 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 now that we've got it we should use it and so yes i think in answer to your question social isolation and social distancing to flatten the curve as they call it dramatically is the only thing we can do at the moment people have to respect it they need to stay safe they need to stay well and they have to think as well it's not about them if they're young fit and healthy it's not about them it's about who they could possibly infect
2: yeah, exactly. What also uh, I took from that was the fact that it wasn't the government that was giving out all the best advice at that time. It was actually newspapers. Newspapers yeah. were, were coming up with the information, and um, there. This shows the the importance of, of the press. I think at times they have a responsibility to to report responsibly, which. Uh, at times over the, the past years, has not necessarily always been the case.
4: No, I think you're right. And, and, and I, I think that the media seem to, to be doing a reasonable job at the moment of communicating the right information. Um, you know there is an argument to say that there's an element of scaremongering for want of a better word going on but I think it's difficult not to scaremonger when you're looking at the evidence and the facts before you particularly those in countries that are slightly more advanced than us in this horrible crisis so look all I can say is is let's use the technology let's use the information that we've got let's make sure that we stick to the science that we move in a decisive not dithering way forward with this not not just in sport football's important to all of all of us and everybody that's listening i accept that and 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 you know that's that's clearly why we're talking but on a wider basis we need to stop this thing in its tracks or at least slow it down otherwise things like the health service are going to get overwhelmed and we're going to see a lot more losses than we than we need to
2: Exactly. And the, the thing you, you, you can only say is that the sooner we stop it, the sooner we've got a chance of getting football back and getting back to normal. But at this moment in time, we are in a battle. We're here. We're, we're going to be here every week as long as you don't moan and go, not you two prattling on again. If you're happy for us to prattle on, we will. Um, we'll always find something to talk about around the the news that's going on and associate it with Chelsea so um it's been a been a really interesting program I, I think this week and I'd just like to say thanks to Naz Mr Nizar Kinsella as usual thanks to Matt Lowe for his first worst and and best uh and thanks to Rick Glanville for all the information and of course special thanks as always to Andy for keeping me company chewing the fat, and, keeping our spirits high um so how's the rest of your day going andy you've got work to do or you're going to take it easy
4: no, I've got work to do. I'm, I'm involved in a few uh, campaigns at the moment to help the music industry. I'm involved in a campaign to help record stores during this difficult time. Obviously, independent record stores are having to close their doors. But that doesn't mean that people can't go to their websites and shop online with those record stores and keep them alive. So we're, we're doing. We're launching a big campaign about that on Thursday in the UK, which hopefully will go viral. So look out for that. And then I'm also involved in a sort of wider global uh, initiative that 's hoping to bring uh, a lot of artists playing music from their homes or playing in isolation and and engaging with their fans online and that 's working with some of the big social media companies so that's that 's in the planning stages at the moment so yeah it 's keeping me busy
2: excellent and you 're helping keep the troops entertained and that's yeah. that 's the the main thing you know it's it's there's no time for boredom at the moment and we'll, we'll, well, we and you
4: should use this time if you 're isolating. You know, you should go and bloody learn a language and, and, uh, you know, and do something interesting. Do something you wouldn't ordinarily do. I mean, I know these are difficult, dark and worrying times, but... Treat this as an opportunity if you can and, and go out and, do, and, and read some long reads or go and you know, investigate things you haven't done before. Be curious and, and, and you get, keep your brain moving because I think that's important as well as your physical health to keep your mental health high as well. You know, We wish everybody out there the very best in these difficult times and, and hope that you can get through this as,
2: as well as you possibly can. Great sentiment and I totally agree with you and thank you again and we will be back Hopefully next week, and keep the blue flag flying high. Uh, we are all Chelsea, but we are all people. This is a playback media production. Get all the associated links to this podcast at chelseapodcast.net.
3: Sports Social Podcast Network.